Hello and welcome to K-Talks. My name is Rastko Petakovic. Today I'm speaking with Michaela Magas and Andrew Dabber. In short, they are a force of nature on the cross-section of music and innovation. Michaela is the creator of the Industry Commons and Music Tech Fest. She is an innovation advisor to the European Commission and the G7 leaders. And in 2017, she was awarded European Woman Innovator of the Year Award. Andrew is the director of Music Tech Fest, which is a global community platform of over 7,000 creative innovators and scientific researchers. He's also an author of several books about media, music, innovation, and the social impact of digital technologies. In 2006, he established a pan-European digital music strategy think tank and consultancy new music strategies. I will be linking more information about these two impressive guests in the notes of this episode, including links to bios, social media and books. So without further ado, I'm bringing to you Michaela Magas and Andrew Dabber. Hi, Michaela and Andrew, and thanks so much for agreeing to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, maybe I could give you a brief introduction on what this is, who we are, and why we are doing this. Uh, we are a law firm, and as you can imagine, this is completely outside our comfort zone. But we also want to do things in the public that are more convenient for people, where we go about exploring businesses, exploring science, arts, culture, and so on. And so we have a sort of a commitment here, and that is to not make just legal podcasts or in-depth legal content. And so this exercise is pretty much us exploring our curiosities around many different things and seeing if anything sticks with our clients, with the startup community, and so on. So what we try to do as a business and what we like to encourage with K-Talks is to have a platform a community of sorts where people get ideas, where they think in novel ways and ideally get inspired to become entrepreneurs. And so when I heard about what you have been doing, I was very much impressed, you know, because it kind of hits a lot of my curiosity spots. I really love music. I like technology and I like culture. Uh, So what you are doing is kind of on the cross section of all three. I was, of course, trying to learn as much as I can about the concept of Music Tech Fest, but maybe it would be better if you can start by explaining briefly to our listeners what is it that you do and what is the Music Tech Fest. Um, So, well, thank you for this uh, to begin with. And uh, it's always fantastic that, uh, you know, as as a legal firm, you reach out to startups and to young entrepreneurs and that sort of um, group of people because they tend to be underserved uh, by your profession in particular because it tends to be prohibitively expensive. Um, But also because their landscape in terms of rights and in terms of registration of their intellectual property is changing and we are actually contributing to this. 
So I'm sitting here with Andrew Dubber, who's, for instance, you might be familiar with Bandcamp. Um, he is uh, someone who authored the book, uh, which he can probably tell you more about later, um, that really uh, that um, uh, inspired uh, the founders of Bandcamp to start that company uh, because he actually outlined a system that would allow musicians uh, to utilize online tools to actually earn a proper living uh, from it, which was really unheard of, especially at that time. But I mean, that's that's a, that's that kind of story. So it does it is really relevant to anybody who's starting a business uh, today uh, to see, for instance, an example of where someone has utilized digital tools um, uh, to their advantage and to create a new business model that actually really works. Um, so in that sense, um, uh, you know, the sort of things that we do are those types of things where we look at what are the new affordances of the technologies and then we experiment with them. And we do experiment with them with our huge community. We have over 7,000 members um, and they are from all kinds of backgrounds. Um, they gather around music because music is our social glue for the very reasons you have just specified. Um, the uh, the idea that uh, everybody loves to go to concerts, uh, whether that be classical or, or popular or electronic music, um, or they play an instrument, or they um, or they have an interest, they have an affinity towards music. They can either uh, uh, be uh, involved actively, or they are simply curious. For instance, you know, people listen to. Uh, Latin music without knowing very much about the culture that's associated necessarily with it. They tend to learn about the culture through the music. So it's very accessible. So we call music our social glue. Um, and and uh, I can get uh, a Nobel laureate in physics who is averse to anything to do with the arts and says, well, it's, uh, humanities and arts are not my my um, thing but if you say mention music ah that's different you know so so this is why it's so wonderful uh, for bringing people together so we bring this huge community together around uh, playing around with music around the fact that um, music allows us to prototype uh, very quickly and easily in a low risk space um, but also gives us very fast feedback you know whether something works or not and very often, whatever you have invented can then be ported over to to other areas of activity. Um, for example, if you do create, a, as, as we have done in the past, an interface which allows you to play music directly from your brain, that gives you uh, uh, basically a test for what you can do in terms of operating machinery from your brain. Um, so it is actually a very, very quick and easy, um, uh, well, quick and I mean, I'm, I'm sort of exaggerating a little bit. <laughs> it's, not, it's not an easy thing to set up. Um, but once you have set it up, it gives you a very quick feedback and you understand how quickly your brain is adapting to something and how um, easy it would be or relatively easy it would be for people to train to start to operate machinery uh, with, for instance, neurofeedback. So this is a very, very interesting space. This is the sort of thing we do, and this is why people sort of think it's science fiction, and they kind of it takes them a while to get their head around around it. But it has major, major implications on everything, including law, copyright, intellectual property. Funnily enough, we will start throwing le legal stuff back at you during this podcast, I'm sure, because we constantly have to think about it. Well, of course, and and no problem. Um, I'm I'm really loving this that I'm hearing because I also love music in a way that is 
I think, special. You know, I, I love arts, but I think music has this sort of a visceral impact on people. It kind of gives a strong emotional feedback to the listener, to the artist, and it instantly creates a community. Uh, you see this at the festivals or at concerts. You, you hear the music, you see the people, but you also see that kind of a glue that exists around them in that moment. And then uh, the bonds that are created at those events, they, you know, very often last uh, the longest, sometimes a lifetime. So uh, it is really great. And then you see how music is developing and evolving together with technology. And this, of course, isn't new, but still there is this kind of a strict form that is evolving slowly. Uh, the content is changing, uh, the form is changing, uh, and the technology is changing the form, but again, still slowly and within a certain set of rules. So what you are doing, in my view, uh, is kind of really allowing the experimentation to go wild. So, you know, there are no rules, uh, which is very interesting. So, for example, maybe electronic music, if we take it as an example, uh, that is on the cutting edge right now, but it also has certain rules to it. Uh, and what you're doing is kind of breaking the rules and going outside of it. And actually not, not you're doing it, but you're bringing together people who like to break the standard rules, experiment, and again, see what sticks and not being afraid to do any of this. So what is the kind of reception that you have? Is there an amazement? Is there uh, an instant impression that you get yeah. with people? Oh, not not only that. I mean, it's 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 massively. Um, it's getting a huge amount of traction. For instance, one of our um, one of our long term members since two thousand and fifteen, in fact, um, uh, is um, uh, uh, founder of DadaBots. Um, this is a duo who um, are creating experimentation with uh, neural networks produced music. Um, it has really become a sort of an art. Uh, in a sense that it is not just a simp uh, simple f fact of feeding um, samples uh, into neural nets and then having to um, see what kind of comes out, but actually it, it, how you train the system, how you nudge it towards certain directions, it's an art. Um, it's a new tool for, for, for music production. And what's really incredible, what I've done, apart from, you know, replicating Kurt Cobain's voice, and, or rather getting the you know, neural nets to actually sound and even say things that Kurt Cobain would say and things like that. Um, what has really been incredible about it is that um, they've created kind of new formats. You know, we've been stuck in the Motown uh, track format uh, for <laughs> for a very, very long time. And it was there for a reason. You know, it was a... Um, uh, dinky sort of a short uh, s size format that could fit between um, radio reports. So you could fill that space. It was also fitting on the vinyl uh, 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 size uh, 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 seven inch record. Um, it was the sort of thing that was uh, logical at the time. And of course, the art around the track that lasts three and a half minutes developed beautifully by Motown with this sort of intro, the build up, the, the refrain, etc. And this has been replicated for 50 years and uh, more than that. Um, and with the digitized, with the digital technology, um, it didn't, I mean, you know, we had a concept album, you know, we had Pink Floyd and all the rest of it early 70s so the album you know 33 it's a sort of uh, uh, 12 inch uh, record came out then that gave us a new format etc but really haven't really moved on you know from this and yet what dadabots have done is 
We have online on YouTube, they have tracks that are ongoing. The neural net keeps keeps building it. And it's it you plug in and you hear part of that track as it's ongoing, you know. Mm. And and it never stops. It's it's kind of constantly progressing and it's a it's like a concept album of the of the AI age. <laughs> and it's it's really fascinating. It's got a lot of traction. It, it's been on TechCrunch, it's been on all kinds of uh, sort of things and of course it's been uh, um, uh, promoted now in uh, for instance music industry trade fairs and uh, people want to showcase this kind of new new format and also uh, new museums who want to feature it and things like that. So, uh, yes, it has. It, it, it is getting um, a great deal of attention. Um, there, is a, there is a great deal of discussion over how much of a quality you get out of these systems, and it is exactly like any other tool. Um, uh, uh, CJ Carr, who's this amazing ex-Berkeley College of Music kind of guy who's uh, behind Idabots with, uh, with his colleague, um, uh, he is really an artist now in this because he's been doing it for five years and he's really honed in on his craft so it is much like any other tool and I don't know if Andrew wants to add something because he's well, been thing, working with The thing I was going to say is that uh, the developments of music have always been people kicking at the edge of what's technologically possible so you get something like the Beatles doing Sgt Peppers what they were doing was you know in the recording studio going what else can this do and trying to find where the edges are and pushing them out. Radiohead, similar thing. Craftwork, similar thing. Just here is the technology that we now have. What else can be music? And I think that's been sort of the driving force throughout a lot of popular music history has been people experimenting at the edges. And the innovation always comes from the margins. Even if it's from enormous, famous, successful bands that are doing it, it's this kind of marginal activity of not trying to repeat what's already been done, but actually wrestling with the technology and trying to innovate with it. It's been uh, really successful. Am I, am I all right in saying that uh, Sergeant Pepper had the loop at the end of the vinyl, um, basically the vinyl kept sort of jumping forever? Um, and then when they digitized it, they lost it because they had to cut cut it off. Because basically when you left it on the record player, it just kept on like looping at the end. Um, and that was actually deliberate. It was a deliberate feature. Am I well, correct? Well, the, I, I don't know 100% if it was Sgt. Peppers that did that. There was there was definitely a Beatles album where that was the case. Okay, um, so maybe I got the wrong album. We need I to double know. check on that. I thought because Sgt. Pepper was so tremendously innovative, I thought it was that one. But anyway, we can check. But there was definitely one of theirs. My excuse was I was born when Sgt. Peppers came out. So it's not <laughs> <laughs> it's not in my uh, in my frame of reference quite as much as some of the later But they cut it do. off when they digitized it. Yeah. Because they just didn't know. And of course, there are tools, digital tools, that will allow you to do this infinite record concept mm. but they just didn't you know it was just this kind of like new you know just they didn't get kind of get the concept basically when they digitized it. but the thing that you touched on right at the beginning of uh, music being something that is more than just entertainment it's something that sort of brings people together it's just like you say a social glue uh, it's something that uh, really moves people beyond I mean beyond what language can do it's sort of I, I have a friend who's a, an instrumental musician who says that uh, music is his way of communicating when the words run out and I think there's a really nice idea in that I've worked a lot in um, music as a tool for social change so working with projects Projects in places like India and Venezuela and Colombia where people are actually trying to make people's lives better and using music as a way of doing that. And it sort of really he speaks with, to... He had to, be, he had to be guided by drug lords. I mean, this is, a, this is really good stuff. But it speaks you know? to how important music can be in people's lives when it can be deployed in a way like that. It isn't just sort of this kind of distraction uh, or, or just mere entertainment. There's a, there's a lot more sort of depth to it than that. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, the fact that um, I mean, seriously, I mean, you had protection from a, a, a you had to get protection from a, the drug lord of the barrio, right? It the was it was something like that. It's one of those uh, very long stories that involve some uh, very questionable people, but um, we were able to do because the only way that they could access these poor kids is by getting protection, and the only way you could you know you get protection is is basically and 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 it turns out right that the 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 guy in charge uh, with sort of you know, dubious past, uh, actually wanted the kids not to follow in his footsteps, which is uh, an interesting yeah, story. Yeah, to tell, to tell the story, essentially uh, each neighbourhood in this part of uh, Caracas and Venezuela is run by a particular um, crime lord, essentially. And so what this one guy did is he invited us up there to, to essentially run a music workshop, music tech workshop in his basement and, and essentially put the word out on the street that while we were there, we were untouchable. And so we would walk through the streets of this neighborhood and they would just be empty because people were terrified of us because they were terrified of him. Um, but what he wanted was for the young people in his community, which had an average life expectancy of 18 years old for, for, for men, um, because just the violence was so high in this, this one community, um, making particularly hip-hop uh, was seen as a way out of uh, of these kinds of environments. It was like the the only other thing that you could be was a hip hop artist, and so the idea that um, bringing people in to do to do music training or to do you know how do you promote your record, how do you you know record using very simple technologies, those sorts of things, was actually seen as um, you know emancipatory, which is uh, kind of interesting. So we worked with a guy, an amazing figurehead in Brazil called Peña Schmidt, who worked with uh, Gilberto Gil when he was Minister of Culture. And uh, in the uh, Auditorio Iberapuera in, in Sao Paulo, um, he was having, um, he was basically collecting all the kids uh, from the favela. In, in, uh, and, and basically uh, all the kids from the favelas were given instruments and it was it was a program to, you know, this is the way to get them out of poverty. And then, and, and then he said, well, I'd love to add is the element that you guys add, which is the technology element. Because uh, then, uh, you know, in uh, 15, 20 years, you have a generation of engineers. And as it so happened, uh, European Commission, uh, you, you might have picked up, I'm, I'm an advisor to them. They sent me to advise the Brazilian government prior to the pr present government, um, the previous government, and uh, uh, to the uh, Minister of uh, um, uh, Innovation and Science and Education and Communication. And, and um, and uh, we were talking about deploying Internet of Things uh, around Brazil and how much this would help with health and also with uh, the food production industry. Um, and we did all of that. But then uh, when he told me the story that uh, they had uh, had a campaign to enable all the remote areas of Brazil to have mobile phones because they felt that this would really help help the society there, I realized that uh, in today's age, if we deploy uh, microcomputers... Um, because they're super cheap, you know, we had one computer per, uh, per child, one laptop per child uh, initiative. It was rather expensive. It was it was a fantastic initiative, but it was rather expensive. Nowadays, you have microcomputers, they're super cheap, so you get Arduinos and what have you. And if you add this to music, which drives all of the kids, you know, <laughs> there's not a child in Brazil that doesn't react to music, um, then uh, you um, uh, you actually can in, in sort of, you know, give it 15 years, you have you have a country of engineers. So we did this uh, this thing called 
child, um, um, uh, one smartphone per child. Um, so um, yeah, and this was very well, sort of very well received. Mm. Um, so yeah, it, it's a, it's an amazing enabler. Sorry, this was a very long answer to your question. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I guess I mean the point that I would want to make is that. It, the, yes, music responds to changes in, in the technological environment, but also technology is changed in response to what people do with music, arts, creativity, uh, and there's the opportunity to sort of experiment in that space in order to make technological changes that can be applied across all sectors. And and I fully agree. And actually, two things resonated with me that you just mentioned. You know, Belgrade, Serbia, when I'm uh, where I'm from. Uh, has this kind of uh, situation, decades of troubles, so to say, uh, social, political, economical, and so on. And, you know, this is the area of the world uh, that was under so many troubles for so many years. And what was glue for the like-minded people was also one of the engines of change, and that was music. So, you know, similarly, in East Berlin, there was a huge scene that emerged before uh, the changes. And then when the you know, winds of change came, uh, a huge new subculture had already existed there and was transformed into one of the major cultures uh, in, the, in the world right now. Uh, but what is extremely nice to see is how all of these cultures across the world can uh, sort of cross-pollinate and then exist and be experienced in a similar way in so many different cultures. And then there is science and new progress and new ways of doing the experimentation. So, for example, when you say concept albums by, by Pink Floyd, you know, this is something that uh, I was maybe too young uh, to, to live through. Uh, but I know my father was uh, a huge collector of those records. And I know I that... I can tell I, you, I'm obviously older than you. Uh, my first record was Wish You Were Here on You Got On. And the funny thing about You Got On was, you know, we would get uh, we would get some a selection of great um, uh, music from, from the West, uh, but printed a bit late usually in Yugoslavia, but you st you st we were still able to get it. And actually they had pretty good taste. They would pick some good stuff. <laughs> um, we couldn't get everything, but we could get some good things. So uh, Wish You Were Here was my first record at age of 10 that I bought myself. And uh, and uh, uh, the album that is, and the funny thing was that uh, the issue we here originally had uh, like a brown paper bag cover uh, in in Britain because there is a bit of a kind of a connotation with a brown paper bag as being something that you're like if you put a brown paper bag on your head is like you're ashamed sort of thing and so it was there was a kind of a story behind it but they didn't quite quite get it so there was just a black paper cover so it's a, it's an unusual version of the album and i still have it intact you know how he has maybe you're familiar it has several covers inside um like two inside and then one paper one it's still i mean it's been listened to death but it, it still has the the paper the black paper over the top that was particularly you got on version yeah, I was I was getting there exactly with that. I think uh, they were experimenting with with music in new ways, with sound uh, and the listening experience uh, yeah. around music. So for me, it was uh, a dark side of the moon, and that was my first experience with uh, Pink Floyd, and I loved it as a kid. And then you also mentioned Kraftwerk, and uh, you know this is kind of a different story, but still something that 
um, that was changing the music, you know, towards uh, to what it is today. And for some reason, I just remembered, I, I had a discussion recently with uh, one of my father's friends, who is uh, a generation older, of course, uh, than I am. And he was under the impression that um, music stopped uh, evolving around uh, late 80s. And, and for me, that was the time when it really exploded. You know, uh, that kind of music, for example, you can't disregard Nirvana. And interestingly, I had their t-shirt before this one. And I just changed because I thought I should look better for <laughs> recording this. Uh, yeah. So, you know, I... I have maybe a different view on uh, that and maybe he has a different view on that. But what everybody knows and probably thinks right now is that uh, Kraftwerk is still alive. That kind of spirit and what Kraftwerk changed uh, in music is still alive. So going, going to the question, what would you tell to someone who is of an opinion that the music stopped evolving or at least stopped, uh, rock stopped evolving around the late 80s or early 90s? I would say for you, that's absolutely correct. This is what I would say to them. You know, if, if for you music stopped evolving, then fine. It stopped evolving because you're not the target audience for what's changed now. Uh, I have a 27-year-old son and his iconic, groundbreaking, changing artists, most of them people my age haven't heard of. They're not in our consciousness. They're not... Um, you know, they're not shared amongst us. We haven't collected the records. They haven't been revelatory moments to us because the revelatory moments to us were when we were sort of 15 to 20. Uh, and when he was 15 to 20, those were different groups. But there are some phenomenally, uh, particularly in the underground, uh, and like I, I spent uh, a decade in Britain. Michaela spent much longer in Britain. And so we have that kind of um, British kind of context. Um, but you look at what's happened with dubstep, with grime, with, um, you know, different kinds of electronic movements, uh, you know, uh, drum and bass jungle, you know, all these sorts of things. There are iconic, uh, you know, seismic shifts in, uh, in music that have happened that have more or less passed me by because it's not for me. Um, which is fine. I don't have to be, at the, you know, at 52 years old, I don't have to be at the at the cutting edge of what's happening Having now. Having said that, we listen to all of it. We do, <laughs> we do listen to it, but I'm not a student of it in the same way that I'm a student of a lot of music that happened when I was a, sort of a teenager. And I, I can tell you what all the groundbreaking stuff was for me. And a lot of people my age would go, yeah, well, that's exactly the most important stuff. Uh, and what's happened since then? But to my answer to that is what's happened since then you know, wasn't for you. Well, more importantly, you weren't at that uh, highly emotional age to mm. receive it. Yeah. And I think it creates an, a tremendous impact uh, uh, sort of around, you know, everybody kind of goes back to the age of 15 as a sort of seminal age when, yeah. when something really kind of hits you because at that time, um, you know, biologically, we, are sort of, we tend to be more kind of prone to be more emotional about things and mm. we, we are more impressed by things and we absorb things more but it also speaks to us more for mm. that reason and which is there's nothing wrong with that in fact that's a, that's a, it's a very 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 positive uh, uh, thing music for, for people of um, you know in, in their teens it's an incredibly positive element of their lives but there's a there's probably a good reason why you own a Nirvana t-shirt and possibly not a Stormzy t-shirt yeah absolutely yeah do they do they do they even do like Stormzy T-shirts? I would imagine. Just, I would really? imagine. Really, so. I, I would have thought that they would do something different. Maybe, <laughs> maybe. Everyone needs a T-shirt. Right, right. Well, one thing that that 
uh, I think also changed with time is the channels of delivery. And this is kind of a big and obvious thing. It's associated to business, but it's also associated to uh, culture. Because as you mentioned, Yugoton, uh, it was bringing in records and people went to shops and there was this kind of, a, well, almost magical sensory thing when you uh, try to save money for it, then you go to the shop, when you take it out of the box, uh, when you play it and, and so yep. on. My yeah, pocket yeah, yeah. money was spent on the record every week when I started getting pocket money. That was it. Fortunately, they were cheap where we came from, right? And I've been actually, t I've been actually talking to Sergio and Sharper about uh, doing the equivalent of Concrete Utopia that was at the Museum of Modern Art in New York uh, last year. And I said, we need to do the equivalent for the new wave and the whole movement that we had that was totally, like totally, I mean, what he was doing was talking heads, you know, and it was at the same time. And, and now when I show people the videos, they love them, you know, and, and they're timeless. And so basically uh, all of the, the, the bands around that time, absolutely phenomenal stuff that was coming out of our part of the world, plus all the graphic design that was uh, also, uh, uh, and, and the videos and everything else. So we should actually have a retrospective that's equi the equivalent of Concrete Utopia mm. in, in that sense. So sorry, I've, I've cut into it, but it, I'm, very, I'm really actually very passionate about this. No, 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 that, that's great. This is, uh, this is a great topic. And just to continue on that, um, the kind of visceral feeling that I was mentioning, uh, when you touch the record, you know, when you put it on the shelf, when you uh, play it and then return it to the sleeve, that was a whole ceremony. And uh, that is mostly gone gone today. It is just a click on your mobile and then you get it instantly. So what are your thoughts around this change? The fact that it is so ubiquitous uh, and not only the mainstream music, but more and more the alternative music as well uh, is very much uh, available. Is that changing the kind of a strong emotional attachment that our generation or, or previous generations had with, uh, with records? Uh, absolutely, and I think that that's fine. Um, this is the people put this kind of um, uh, moral value on holding physical objects, which I, I find really weird. Um, I, yeah, I'm I'm a record collector. I have a lot of vinyl. Um, I love that, but that's because I'm the age I am, not because the the records are better than than digital. They don't sound better. There's a whole lot of nonsense debate about um, records sound different. They don't sound better. Um, I happen to prefer it. Um, but the the ownership, the the going into a record shop, I love all that. I'm an absolute sort of vinyl nut. I love record shopping. I love owning. I love. But I don't think it's bad that if that goes away um, because it doesn't have to go away for me. Uh, it, it's just what other people find more convenient or more suited to them. I didn't have I didn't have games in the way that people have games today, and so that kind of passion and collection and enthusiasm is for now a medium that can last, let's say, 72 hours from start to finish, not 45 minutes. And I think that's really interesting. So I don't think that, that music has stopped being important, but I think the ratios have changed of how people spend their time and attention. And that's a large part to do with the technology because what the reason that we value these things is because that was the technological limits of what we could do. If I could have... Somebody told me when I was 15 years old that I could put a thousand records into my pocket and listen to any of the tracks in them in any order. I would have gone, 
that's the future I want. That sounds amazing. Um, and yet what I was doing was going and, you know, my pocket money on a weekly basis, I could get, if I was lucky, one record, you know. Yeah. So so some things are lost, some things are gained, but it's a, it's a shifting of ratios and that always happens with everything forever. And there's another element to it, which is that when we first started digitizing music, we were, as I say, we were simply replicating what was there before, mm. which was designed for another format. And I did say this already, you know, the Motown format, etc. Um, and basically, when you start digitizing something that achieved a great level of art form in another format, um, it's it's an it's awkward, it's inadequate, you know, until you start discovering what this format can give you. Mm. And until you start creating artistry, like I mentioned, for instance, with neural networks and other types of uh, uh, ways in which you use the technology as a tool to create with it, and then you start discovering that there are some other exciting things that happen. You know, there are things that you couldn't have done with the previous format. So this is this is the shift. You know, and, and I think you have a whole kind of theory about these. <laughs> yeah, I do. I books even, but um, but, but it comes it's true. down to He's like books about <laughs> people say things like in the digital age, how long should an album be? Because it's not restricted by the the length of the vinyl anymore. And then the next question is, well, what should an album be? And then the, the next question is, should an album just be music? Is it something that I should hear or something I should see, something I should feel, something that I should interact with? You know, what are now the affordances of essentially what is a creation of a piece of art by people who have creative talents and things to say? Uh, and how do I put that out in a way that is meaningful and that, that people can kind of make sense of? But also, how do I generate sound in in completely new ways? Well, that's how do I experience sound? You know, I mean, we have we have some pe uh, people in our community who have developed um, ways in which you can feel sound through your bones, and um, you know, they have it is a bit like introducing kind of quadrophenia into your into your body, you know, sort of thing. And, and it's a completely new experience. Mm. And so uh, the experiential side of things has also changed tremendously. Um, the business models we're constantly experimenting with. Well, the interesting thing is the business models. And the reason I think that you raised distribution of music as the interesting part is because that's where all the, the kind of the dialogue has been, and particularly in the press and the, the record companies talking about it and that being the important thing. But there has been, I would argue, more significant change in the production of music, but also in the consumption of music. Um, um, and the promotion of music, you know, how how music is promoted today is radically different from how it was promoted 30 years ago. Um, so not just distribution, but, you know, composition, you've got the production. you there, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got, You want to pass it over to me? Sure. I know you can't, uh, you can't see it on a podcast, but this is a T-shirt um, that's based on a famous design by Experimental Jet Sets from Holland. But we've actually turned it into uh, the original one had the Beatles' uh, names, which had uh, John and Paul and, and George Ringo and George. Ringo, yeah. um, and uh, we've changed it to women in electronic music and computing. So basically, Ada, Delia, Laurie, and Daphne. This is not Laurie Anderson, actually, though it could be. Um, it's Laurie Spiegel and Daphne Oram uh, and Delia Derbyshire. Uh, they were uh, uh, part of the radiophonic workshop and they were inventing new kinds of electronics that created new kinds of sounds. Uh, and they were really pioneers. Um, and this one is tremendously popular. But another thing that's really great about it is that all our T-shirts are scannable with your phone and actually have a soundtrack attached to them. Uh, and we can actually change uh, the, um, uh, the music that's sort of kind of attached to them. 
Um, and the reason why this is a, a great business model is because your app actually contains the T-shirt owner's details and their preferences and uh, size and all the rest of it. So instead of merchandise sitting somewhere in a warehouse and then being distributed um, uh, through concerts, etc., this is a pre-order thing. So you put your size in and you say, I'd like this T-shirt. And then um, you end up being, amongst your friends, the one who has the exclusive track on your T-shirt. And you are paying fashion prices for this t-shirt um it's been tested for like 12 years like this kind of model and it works really really well and therefore after you've uh, funded the production of the t-shirt the rest of the money goes to the artist now when have you had the, that much income from from uh, from a piece of merch mm. which is effectively a new format this is a new format it's a new tangible format and also it comes in a vinyl package uh, it's basically a, a vinyl cover that you could put into your vinyl co uh, collection. So if your if your T-shirt is in a wash, you can scan the cover of the of the of the vinyl, mm. and it's got all kinds of other kind of things attached to it. But basically, it's it's like it's it's tremendous uh, a sort of um, new uh, uh, business format, and and all the big labels are uh, very very interested in it. But it doesn't officially register in the charts. And therefore, it's not an official format that's accepted, etc. This is one of those things we need to kind of get over. You know, mm. we've got fantastic new formats. They create great deal of wealth that's fair for artists as well as for everybody else. You know, so it's plenty in there to go for everyone. And you know, all it needs is to be accepted as a as a format and in in the industry. And then we are go. So it's not like we don't have solutions, you mm. know, we have. But there is one other aspect to this, which is that the 20th century was the only time in history where music was so professionalized that there were people who were musicians who were allowed to make music. And then there were audience whose job it was to sit down, put the needle on the record, shut up and listen. And, and prior to that, music had been something that had been uh, cultural and shared and everybody had a piano in the parlour or they had, you know, it was something that people did together. And now it's becoming, again, something that people can do together. So the production of music is no longer simply a professionalised um, you know, uh, ring fenced, you know, with a guild of, you know, you are qualified to be a musician, here's your budget to go into a recording studio. Now, again, we have the opportunity for people to sit at home in their bedrooms and just go, I want to make something. I want to play something. I want to share it with my friends. I want to yeah, Jake, express myself through Jake music. Jake does how many? I mean, he used to do like how many per week? Oh, and, yeah. and they are so free of fear. They don't have this kind of... Um, you know, kind of this, this sort of uh, uh, cultural snobbery about sort of, oh, yeah, you know, shouldn't put anything out. That's not perfect. So like one of his uh, records, this is Jake uh, as in uh, Dover's son. Um, he uh, put out a record at the age of what, 18 or 19, um, uh, uh, put out a track uh, mm -hmm. that had one point something it's got uh, about two million. Uh, yeah, on, two million views online. on YouTube. Uh, you know? so, but but it's it's not made to be a professional commercial release. It's made to be here is a thing that I made. What do you think? Um, but what's really interesting about this conversation, and this goes back to the, the same people who are saying there is no good music made after X amount of years. These are the same people that are saying, well, there's too much music today. There's so much crap out there. How do we sort through all this you know nonsense out there? And the idea that there can be such a thing as too much music makes no sense to me at all. You know, and I mean, partly because just from a purely pragmatic view, if just as a listener, you want to hear a lot of good music, 90% of everything is going to be crap. 
but the more stuff there is, the bigger that 10% is going to be and the more amazing things that are going to be out there in the world. And like, if you can't find good music to listen to today, there is something wrong with your filtering systems. Yeah, yeah. I, I fully, fully agree. And there is a small anecdote on this. Uh, as I was looking for music to be the intro to the podcast, I went to some of these mm-hmm. uh, uh, websites that have all sorts of uh, license-free and licensed uh, material, sounds, music, and so on. And I ended up spending the whole day listening to this music because it was so awesome, you know. I could find so many good tracks uh, to listen to, not only for, for the podcast, but you know, for in, in general. And I was simply amazed with <laughs> how much good quality music you can see everywhere. But let's maybe uh, uh, dial back and, and go go to Kraftwerk uh, one more time. Uh, I think there is, a, there is a crossover here between uh, law and music uh, right there on the Kraftwerk thing, uh, actually, because, uh, you know, as, as you may know, uh, there was this uh, judgment recently by the German courts disallowing the use of uh, a couple of seconds uh, motif from one of their songs. Uh, so how do you think, uh, actually, what are your thoughts around, from the bird's view perspective, how much of an enabler or disabler the current copyright law is to music? <laughs> go. I mean, I also have a lot to, to say about it, but maybe you go first. Uh, okay, um, it's really hard to know how to answer that question in a way that doesn't take several examples, hours. Examples. Well, several hours. Just do examples. Um, but, okay, so here's my starting point. Copyright's really, really important, and it's really, really broken. Um, and, and that's really where I come at this from. There are all these cases in which copyright is it's important because of what it's for. Uh, which is so that people will make things and put them out into the world to contribute to culture. That's For me, that's the purpose of copyright, is to incentivize creativity, is to make sure that the people who create great things uh, have a mechanism by which they can get compensated for that. What it's used for, and the reason I say that it's broken, is to stop that from happening, is for people to, is, is to say, you're not allowed to touch my, my stuff. Um, and use it to make new and interesting things. And so an example of that, Kraftwerk's a really good example for that. The, there's a motif um, from a Kraftwerk song, which is a very important part of a Coldplay song. Um, and uh, and should Coldplay not have been allowed to make that song, uh, not that, that sort of, uh, what is it, five or six note melody, not be able to be heard by an entire generation of, of audiences all across the world simply because they don't happen to own that Kraftwerk record from 1970, whatever it is. Um, I, I think that's where it becomes problematic. And the idea that copyright is used not to incentivize creativity, but to shut it down, that's where it starts to get really, really complex. And the the problem is that there are extremist views on both sides. There are there are copyright abolitionists and there are copyright maximalists, and those are the two loudest conversations in the room. And everybody else in between who's going, well, you know, this is this is more complicated than that. It's more nuanced. This is why you're important. This is why we need lawyers in the mix to go. Actually, guys, no, let's try and find the best resolution to this. Not I win, you lose. But what's best? You know, what are we trying to get out of this? What's best for culture? What's best for the artist? What's best for the create? You know, the continuation of the music industries. What's best for policy? And and you go through like that, and you start to negotiate these these possible answers. What about your eight bar example? Well, okay. So for, from 
let's take AI as a really kind of contemporary example. So there, there are lots of conversations around how copyright should relate to artificial intelligence. Who owns the music that is created, let's say, if an AI can create a new composition? Okay, so you say, well, well, an AI is just a tool. It's a, it's a computer software, so it should be owned by the company that, uh, that, that owns the AI and programs the AI. That's obvious. Okay, so the, the presupposition with copyright, the way that it's written, is that the moment you create a work, the copyright exists. You don't have to register it. You can register it, and that will prove that the copyright exists, but the copyright is already there. It's said to subsist within the work, right? So you get an AI that is owned by a corporation, and then you program that AI to and to analyze all of, not just all of music, but but um, musicology. How does melody work? How does harmony work? How does like rhythm work? Mind. Yeah. Exactly. So you get the AI to do that. Okay, and then you say, write for me, please, every possible eight-bar top-line melody that could be used in a piece of music that hasn't already. And so the AI gets to work and it creates all that. And then suddenly you've got this massive amount of work for every possible song that could ever be written from now into the future is now owned by one organization. What do we do with that? Because that's what's currently possible with both the technology and the law. Precisely. And there's another um, aspect. Let me let me give you another example. Um, if, uh, as we have experienced with the data bots, uh, the AI is, I mean, they were uh, at times uh, sponsored by Amazon services because of the amount of computing power that it requires to train uh, the neural nets, right? So they're maximizing on the um, CPU and they're maximizing, um, basically, you could produ be producing at a maximum now, if everything the AI is producing needs to be registered, parsed and analyzed and registered in some, at some point, you need three or four times the power to then address it, to then process it. And maybe you, you've maxed it already, right? So now what's happening? You can't do it in retrospect. It's too fast, mm -hmm. right? There's too much stuff. So then the question is, right, what is the value of what's coming out? Right? How are you going to think about it as a lawyer, as someone who actually um, protects value for people? Right? Mm. Um, how are you, what is what is the value? Is the value um, uh, only certain things that are coming out where we kind of hit? You know, we, we we program it so that certain things are perhaps more valuable than others because we just simply can't cope otherwise. Or is it uh, when it starts to create a feedback loop with something else? Or is it the reaction to the thing that you are starting to measure as a kind of a value? Now, there are so many parameters here that you could set up in a system like that. That would, uh, but you would have to really seriously think: what, how do we capture the value? Where is the real value? What is protectable here? And this is the new use cases that, in these discussions about copyright, are completely unknown. Mm. They haven't got a clue. I mean, this is why in the AI space, what we do. Um, well, I, I would say in this case, it's rather important because, uh, basically, unless you experiment and unless you have the experience of the thing as we have and we realize that these are the problems you would not in, in a in a in a in a boardroom discussion it just simply doesn't come out because mm. people just can't imagine that this is what's happening you know the other thing that's happening in uh, copyright policy discussions which is really i think problematic is that the only people who get to have a voice at the table are the people with a commercial interest in music 
and not well, the people lobbyists, with the yeah, mainly yeah. absolutely. So, um, but these are groups that represent, let's say, the publishers or the recording industry, or you know, there's the featured artists coalition in in Britain. Now, all of these they have perfectly legitimate positions to defend and and advance their positions and so on. But who isn't being listened to are citizens, consumer groups, listeners. Um, how does this affect them? So you get all of these kind of ridiculous laws that get passed uh, on the basis of lobbyists that open up things for, for things like Sony mm. to be able to reach into your computer and break uh, capability of it so that you can't copy it something onto something that you can play on your car, for instance, because it's in their interests that you don't do that. It's not in your interests at all. But but, but this, is, this is also the irony of it. But the lobbyists themselves have got the information that actually really is not is, is antiquated and it's not really particularly well informed like the cases that I just mentioned but also other cases I mean that has been very famously um, in the past like when we started doing music tech fest back in 2012-13 we had all the big labels the second year because they were really curious as to what we were doing and of course they wanted to uh, kind of protect their IPR and all the rest of it sure. but when they realized the possibilities with some of this stuff they they allowed samples they allowed our crowd to use the samples and in fact turned it into an advantage because uh, everything Everything the band that um, actually uh, uh, was uh, gave gave this some of the samples. Um, uh, it got turned into a really good uh, a version of their their track, uh, a remix of their track, and then they decided to do the opposite. They decided to give it to their fans to to do it with, and realize that there was there was potential. Well, in this. more importantly, it wasn't just samples; it was stems. So it was That's the original right, yeah. multi tracks yeah, of the, of channels. their recordings. The interesting part about the end of that story is that Jeremy from Everything Everything is now the chair of the featured artist coalition which is fighting for for artists to get more and what happened at that time is that warners um actually uh, uh, gave uh, i mean they can give youtube permission for some of the users like music tech fest to use their samples and we have that we got that from them because it was interesting yeah. we got whitelisted yeah because it was interesting for them and then after that Universal, I think it was 2015, I was speaking about content creators to the European Commission and saying just how important this was. And people went into that at that time. And I quoted, uh, it was one of the MDs of, of Universal that actually said how thrilled they are now that users of YouTube use their samples to create videos whereas just the year before they were clamping down on them because they realized there was actually a business model attached to this so when lobbyists lobby for copyright they are lobbying based on what they know and they are not aware of some of these use cases that we are always you know we can always tell them you know there are there are so many more business models you could have out of this if you accept uh, and if you are informed about these new use cases no, I, I think I can also, like you, go on for ages uh, uh, talking about this. But being conscious of uh, the time, I have one more topic that I would like to discuss. Uh, it is more of a kind of personal nature. Uh, I have a daughter who has autism. And one of the things that we've been exploring a little bit was music as a therapy. Because as you probably know, sensory processing plays a huge role for her. And sensory overload ca can be a challenge for, for children with uh, autism. And some of the things that I've been uh, seeing being done by Music Tech Fest is also about using music as a therapy. Can you maybe uh, spend some time discussing this uh, a little bit more? 
Um, the accessibility element is phenomenal in our community and possibly some of the most important results um, have been um, obtained from, from, from uh, work in accessibility and it has been coming very natural to us and to our community because uh, we have like maximal inclusion, like radical inclusion in the sense that uh, we don't consider anyone to be, uh, so to speak, normal, because normal is not really, <laughs> and it's not really a word that should be used. There is no one who's normal, um, and we have discovered in our um, in our experiments and in our uh, uh, in our uh, lab laboratories mm. uh, that uh, basically people who would have been considered less able-bodied, like in the mechanical era, for instance, because they cannot use an arm or they cannot see, um, suddenly we hook them to um, data-driven systems um, and they can move, uh, they can operate systems, uh, as I say, through neurofeedback or through devices that we attach to other parts of their body uh, or through micro-movements, for instance. Uh, suddenly they are brilliant at it. So it's basically the equivalent of, you know, you wouldn't have had a pianist virtuoso before the piano was invented, um, so it's exactly the same uh, now. Is it's it, you you have some new systems uh, that are being designed by our community that suddenly discover virtuosities in people who are like your daughter, autistic, and who perhaps in the kind of um, ordinary sort of framework that's available to her would not be able to excel. Uh, and yet, uh, when you construct the right kind of technology for her, she's able to, she actually proves that she's far, far better than you are um, at, at this particular uh, task or this particular system or, or whatever whatever it is. Mm. And music is is a wonderful uh, a, a tool for this as well, um, in the sense that uh, not only is it understood by everybody, uh, but it is also, and it's also felt by people who are deaf. Uh, they feel the rhythm, they feel the, the vibrations. And vi vibration is something that is fundamental to our DNA. You know, we are, far, all everything inside us is vibration, everything around us is vibration. So, so, so it's, a, it's incredibly um, good a connector um, between people and between people and, and, and systems. And it's 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 uh, it allows uh, uh, we we know from for a very long time I mean since uh, sort of two thousand and five already when uh, our colleagues at Universidad uh, Pompeu Fabra in Barcelona invented the reactable I don't know if you're familiar with it but this is a DJ um, uh, table that has uh, cubes uh, with sort of graphic symbols on them and you could um, you could do, it's basically a part of the analog synth but with with uh, but with very very easy it's very easy to experiment with and and learn it's like a playful thing mm. and autistic children reacted to it when they were testing it autistic children reacted to it beautifully well there are two things that have come out of that uh, specifically so i think they're sort of descendants if you like of the reactable but taken further down the whole um uh, therapeutic and uh you know i guess almost um What's the word I would look for? But um, but uh, yeah, therapeutic is probably the best way to describe it. But they're designed for kids, including kids with autism, as, as I guess probably the best way of thinking of it. One it's is, enabling one is, one as is well. Skug. I mean, therapeutic sounds, sounds like a clinical case. as possibly. I mean, I, I would always call it enabling. Enabling because is you know they can actually express this as they can actually so there are two hear products. how good they are. There are two products. One's called Skoog, mm. out of Scotland, S K O O G, um, and the other one to look at is Juki 
from Belgium, which is J-O-O-K-I, and they're both music-making and music-listening devices that are aimed specifically at kids and, and are responded to really, really particularly well and are thought of in their design for children with autism. And one of the things that's really enabling about that design is it, it sort of unlocks uh, creativity and expression in a way that, you know, tools that are not designed in this way just kind of prevent. So it's, uh, it's they're really lovely products to have a look at and, and a sort of, you know, experiment. Don't with. know how old your daughter is, of course. Um, uh, yeah, she's... She's seven. Yeah, uh, we like tried it. Rolly Blocks, uh-huh. and this is definitely something we can also try and, and do. Yeah, definitely try the Skoog. Uh, uh, absolutely. Yeah. But, yeah. I mean, the fact that she can... This is what's wonderful about music. You know, you hear, it's there's a feedback loop that's mm. immediate. Yeah. Um, and so you know that you've done something cool or something well. Um, and then y- you get co- you build confidence, which is incredibly important for autistic kids. But this is the great thing about technology is these things weren't possible before these technologies were available. So Skoog relies on Bluetooth as a technology in order to exist. Uh, Juki relies on MP3 as a technology in order to be able to exist. So, um, so these sort of uh, new developments in these areas aren't just to make what we already had better, but to make possible whole new things that can improve people's lives. Um, DJ Arthur, you may have um, uh, come across on our website. Uh, uh, he is um, uh, he has heavy disability um, from an arth- arthritic-related uh, disease, uh, sev- severely dis- uh, debilitating. But he is, has got an absolutely full life because he first constructed himself what he called a spaceship. Um, that can be used by his uh, tongue and his nose, uh, where he actually uh, describes his arms as chicken arms. Uh, uh, So um, he is able to use other parts of his body to to create uh, loops now because some of our community constructed specially designed um, devices for him. And uh, and then they started to use AI to allow him to also be a VJ at the same time. Um, So basically... Without all these new technologies, um, he would have been. I mean, he had a dream of being able to play guitar, and now with these new technologies, he's actually. I mean, and, and I'm not saying just like uh, play individual notes, properly play. So his music, the moment that he started doing this with all these devices, two two days after our festival, his music was featured on the BBC. Right. Right. Wow. Uh, well. Thank you. I would just uh, like maybe to share those links in the episode notes uh, once it's uh, produced and released. Um, well, thank you. Uh, thank you so much, Andrew. Thank you, Michaela. Thank you for this conversation. It's been eye-opening and very exciting. And maybe we can do it uh, once again. Brilliant. It's Thanks so much, Rasko. Absolute pleasure. Yeah. yeah.